0: Good morning everyone. If you would go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be uh, picking up in verse 12 this morning and before we do that just want to uh, thank you all for an opportunity to come and preach God's word with you. I appreciate being invited to do that and uh, it's always a privilege to be able to stand up before God's people and, and to share his word and, and to worship with you all and appreciate the songs and uh, my family's been here for about a year now. I'm sure most of you have had a chance to get to know them and uh, they just speak really highly of uh, the three guys that you guys have here, um, Tim, David, and Nathan. And uh, I know that uh, you all are, are, are lucky to have those three guys, but I know that they're, they're also lucky to have you all. And so uh, just appreciate this opportunity to, to spend this time with you. I am uh, not from Wichita, Kansas. I'm from Seattle. So, uh, but I am living in Wichita. I've lived there for about a year and a half now. And so if you're ever driving through, uh, come see us. I always tell people Wichita, Kansas is the, the vacation destination of the world. So I know you'll be out there at some point. Everybody wishes and dreams and hopes to go to Wichita, Kansas. And so I look forward to, uh, to seeing you. And you've got a place to stay if you do. Um, so Philippians chapter 1. And let's just pick up and let's start by reading the text in verse 12. Um, here Paul writes... and. I want to remind you that he's in prison as he is writing this, or really he's under house arrest in Rome. And he starts in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice." When I was preparing this sermon, I came across this story. It started with just this feeble old lady who had this terminal illness. And not only did she have to deal with the fact that one day she's going to die and she knows that that's coming soon, it was also something that made her life miserable day in and day out. And yet she handled her situation, her circumstances, with joy. There was something about the way that she handled it that stood out to one other uh, young lady in particular. And because of how this this older lady facing death handled her situation, handled it with joy and optimism, it caused this younger lady to be converted and become a Christian. And it's kind of interesting. I don't know the name of, of the young man that this lady went on to raise, but he ended up writing books and converting hundreds to be disciples of Jesus Christ and helping thousands grow closer to him. And it got me wondering how many stories are like that, How many of these influential people that we see and we look up to, how many of them have a story that really starts with a feeble old lady's faith as she faces death? You know, I think we take for granted just the impact that our suffering can have, even generations after we're gone. An impact that we might not notice while we're here on this earth, but there is an impact nonetheless. I don't know about you, but when I am going through challenges and when life takes a turn that I wish that it didn't and when things aren't going my way or, or working according to Sam Bray's will, that's when I get down on myself, feel sorry for myself. But there's something about Paul. Paul's weird. You know, he's writing this letter to the Philippians and he can't stop talking about joy. And he's telling them to rejoice. He's telling them, when I think about you, I rejoice. As I sit in these chains, I rejoice. As I think about the future, I rejoice. He says, you ought to rejoice. How many of you have gotten a letter from somebody who is under arrest like that? That's what the gospel does. When we really take it to heart, it makes us a little bit weird in the eyes of the world. Look at Paul, and he had this joy. There's something about him where he was able to see the forest forest through the trees. And he had this unique joy that wasn't based on circumstances. It's not like he had in his mind. Once things in my life finally start going the way that I want them to go, once I have the house, once I live where I want to live, once uh, you know, my guy who I want to be Caesar is finally in that position, then I'll be happy. Paul is in chains, under arrest in Rome, and he's saying, I rejoice. Don't you want to have a joy like that? I do. And so what is it about Paul? Why is it that he was able to rejoice even in chains? And I would start off by saying simply that Paul was able to see purpose in his chains. If you want to ensure a lack of joy in your life, all it takes is for us to not see the purpose, not only of our lives, but especially of the suffering that we have to endure, On Wednesday nights back in Wichita, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes right now, and there's a lot of shocking verses, if you haven't sat down and read that, verses that when you read them, you go, really, this is in the Bible? But he's looking at life as if, you know, what we see under the sun is all that there is. And he looked at the oppression and the suffering, and he says, man, just to witness these things is terrible. And he concludes that the people who live and then finally when they die, they're better off than the people who are living if all there is is what we see. But then he goes one step further and he says, uh, actually, I'll I'll say this. He says, better uh, than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's not just the people who are dead that are better off. He says, it would have been better to have never existed at all if what you see is what you get. If there is no purpose, if the suffering and the oppression are ultimately pointless. And so if we want to have no joy, all it takes is for us to not see any purpose, not only in our lives, but especially in our suffering. You see, Paul, he didn't have that problem. That as he sat in his chains, he was able to see great purpose and even opportunity in his chains. And I want to ask, what would you have done? What would we have said if we were in Paul's situation? Because i got to say, I wouldn't be writing the things that Paul is writing. I wouldn't have the attitude that Paul has if I were in his situation. I certainly wouldn't be writing a letter encouraging others. I'd be saying, why are you guys sending me letters encouraging me? And yet that's what Paul does. You know, if it were me, I would have looked at that situation as a reason to lose my faith. To maybe give up, to change what I'm doing. Maybe it would cause me to say something like, how can God be with me while I sit in these chains? All I've done is what he wants me to do, and now I'm under arrest. If you have to think about it, in those days, the one most devastating thing you could imagine that you could do to somebody's ministry is to take them and arrest them, to remove them from the audience that they have to speak to, to remove their right to speak. That's why we covered our free speech, don't we? If our right to preach Christ were taken away, how many of us would just be focusing on that? Would say, I can't believe they did this. They have no right to do it. They're taking away my right to preach Christ. Maybe we would say something like, clearly God doesn't approve of what I'm trying to do or what I want. Yet Paul didn't see it that way. In fact, I would venture to say that as Paul sat there in his chains in Rome, he might have even seen seen it as an answered prayer. Not answered the way that he wants it, but an answered prayer nonetheless. I'll remind you in Romans chapter 1 and verse 10, it's there that Paul writes to the Roman church. He says, I'm always asking in my prayers that if it's somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. There you go, Paul. <laughs> answered prayer. Not answered the way that he wanted it to or the way that he imagined, but answered nonetheless. None the less. And so there Paul is in Rome under arrest, and he has this purpose, he has this opportunity, but Paul has to be willing to see it. And that's the hard part, because the only thing we want to see sometimes is we want to see our chains. If we're in Paul, I just want to focus on those chains and feel sorry for myself, but again, that's not what Paul did. Notice again in verse 12, uh, where Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. I love that word actually there. It simply means to a greater or higher degree. simply means more. And it's as if Paul is saying, look, I know that my situation looks bad. I know what people are saying. I know it looks like this is it, this is the end, this is the worst case scenario, but he's saying there's more than meets the eye here. There's more going on than what you would initially think. What's happened to me has actually, some of your versions say, in reality, advanced the gospel. Another interesting, unique word, that word advance, it means to move forward, but not just to move forward simply. It always is used in the context of of moving forward in the presence of obstacles. Historically, it was used to describe uh, armies and pioneers as they were kind of hacking away at the brush so that they could advance, so that they could move forward. You know, as I again look at Paul's situation, I would have thought that this would be something that stopped the gospel. But Paul's understanding is that despite all the obstacles, despite the challenges, despite things not going the way that he imagined, that what has happened has actually advanced the gospel in the presence of obstacles. That's how it works. It doesn't advance easily. We want people to just be dropped into our lap Uh, We imagine fishing for men like we take the boat out there and we just wait for the fish to drop and flop into the boat, don't we? Some of you are fishermen. That rarely happens, doesn't it? That's not a good way to make a living as a fisherman. Uh, You get the fish by going through obstacles, by dealing with the challenges. And that's what Paul's situation was here, that the gospel was advancing despite the challenges. And so I want to ask this. What are your chains? What are you dealing with? I don't know any of you at all. Um, Maybe it's a difficult season of parenting for you. Maybe you're in the middle of a job you hate. Man, I've been there. Maybe loneliness, maybe singleness. Not just singleness as a younger person, but maybe you're a widow reflecting on the previous life that you had with your spouse and how they're now gone. Maybe your chain is a fractured relationship. Somebody that you once were so close with, but because of some sort of falling out, you're no longer close with that person. Every time you see them, it's awkward and you're not, not sure what to do. Maybe it's some sort of physical trial. You're growing older, faster than what you expected. You walk in on in a, in a walker or you're bound to a wheelchair. What are you dealing with? Well, I want to remind you, Paul saw his chain as an opportunity. So I want to put that question in your mind and let you wrestle with it. What if your chain, whatever that thing is, in reality is really an opportunity? Maybe your loneliness, you're able to have this opportunity to display the comfort and presence of God in your life. Maybe in your difficult season of parenting, this is a formative time in your child's life that will result in you raising them in the Lord and them having a faithful family themselves. Maybe your fractured relationship is an opportunity to display the forgiveness, grace, peacemaking abilities that God has shown towards you. Again, maybe your body is breaking down, you're bound to a walker or a wheelchair, and that's an opportunity to show people what a hope in the resurrected body looks like in such a way that causes maybe just one other person to see and look at you and the hope that you have in your life and say, that's something that I want for myself. So again, maybe your chain is an opportunity. But the trick is you have to see it. You have to be willing to see it. You have to see Christ. We have to focus on God's will over my own because if we're always focusing on the way that I wish my life would work out, we're never going to have that joy. We're always going to be disappointed. I like what one person said. He put it this way. He said, Paul's focus on Christ made him an expert at reframing his experiences so that the negative became a positive. You know, I'm really good at the opposite, at reframing my situation so that the positive becomes a negative. He said his chains could easily be viewed as a tragic end to a brilliant career, restriction of a gifted apostle and an outrageous injustice against a Roman citizen. Instead of being led by his chains to a negative outlook, Paul used them to lead his guards to the knowledge of Christ. So that's the thing, Paul, he saw this opportunity, he saw purpose in his chains, but at some point he had to be willing to seize that opportunity, didn't he? And that's, that's really the trick. You know, I think we go through things in our lives and we can perhaps imagine, okay, I can see how God might be glorified in my current situation. We can see how we can perhaps be an, an example uh, of God and the hope that he gives us in our current situation, but sometimes that's all we do. We see it, and then we go back to focusing on that chain, focusing on ourselves, and the opportunity to bring glory to God just kind of passes us away. But Paul is sitting in his chains, and he's there in Rome, and that really should have been the end. But I want you to imagine Paul as he's under arrest... You ever thought about this? He's under arrest, he has a chain, and you know it's chained to probably his ankles and to his wrists. But you ever thought about the fact that he saw literally a direct line from the chain on his end, and he follows that chain and he's linked up literally to a lost soul. What do I mean by that? In Acts twenty-eight and verse sixteen. You'll remember at the end there, it ends with Paul being under arrest. And it says, When he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him historically how I understand this is that Paul wouldn't have just been uh, chained to a wall or something like that. He would have been chained to a guard. (laughs) And for six hours. And they would come in, they would rotate one guard at a time every six hours. Can you imagine being chained to a preacher for six hours? Maybe you'll empathize with our wives a little bit. (laughs) Um, Talk about a captive audience. I can keep going. Um, What do you think Paul talked about? Six hours, another one comes in. Six hours, another one comes in. Six hours, another one comes in. i got to believe Paul wouldn't shut up about the gospel. As these guys came in, it was like Rome was sending him people to preach to on their dime, on their money. And It would be one thing to see that opportunity, but the thing with Paul is that he was actually willing to seize it. And so what's the result? In Philippians 1 and verse 13, it says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. I love this verse, probably my favorite verse, one of them in the New Testament, where Paul kind of winks at the Philippians, I think, when he says it at the end of this letter. He says, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong in Caesar's household. How awesome is that? Well, let's not take for granted what's going on here. This would have taken a tremendous amount of courage because what is it really that Paul's under arrest for? They kind of initially got him on a technicality, but the real reason he's under arrest is because he's preaching the gospel. And so what does he do while he's under arrest? Preaches the gospel to his captors. And this word that refers to the imperial guard, it most likely refers to this elite. These weren't just you know, random prison guards. It was most likely this elite group of Roman soldiers that consisted of about nine to 10,000 men. And really they were known as like king in those days. They were so influential that if they picked the guy that they wanted to be Caesar, more often than not he would become Caesar. These are the people that Paul was preaching to and spreading the gospel to. Imagine how, how much courage it took to do that. And it's so amazing what takes place here. I don't even know that you could have imagined it happening. If somebody brought this up in Rome and said, you know, we should pray for an opportunity to preach the gospel to the imperial guard, people would have dismissed it and maybe said something like, nah, it's too ideal. That's unrealistic. And yet, here's God working. Working through Paul. Why? Because he saw the opportunity, but he was actually willing to preach it. And so it spreads throughout that whole imperial guard. People are converted. Even these warriors for Rome are are converted and it never happens if Paul isn't first put in chains, dragged off to Rome, it doesn't happen if Paul doesn't have the courage to open his mouth, or if Paul remains more focused on his chains than where his chain could lead. So it got me thinking am I sometimes failing to seize opportunities because I hide behind certain words? There would have been all sorts of excuses, I think, that could have popped up in Paul's mind as he sits under arrest, thinking about, okay, maybe I should open my mouth and preach to this guy. I think one of the biggest words that I use to dismiss opportunities to preach the gospel is that word, ideal. Uh, I think that we all imagine ourselves sharing the gospel from time to time. We imagine ourselves doing it far more than we actually do it, don't we? And I don't know who it is for you. Maybe it's a friend, a co-worker, Maybe that regular that you keep on bumping into at the coffee shop. And you have that window of opportunity and you're just about to say something, but then we dismiss it with a phrase like, too idealistic. I'm worried. I'm worried because if we aren't careful, the only thing that becomes idealistic is this idea that we're actually going to open our mouths and preach it, if we aren't careful. Or we dismiss opportunities by saying things like, they won't respond. Have you ever said that to yourself? That's a dangerous one because, well, really on two accounts. One, we're judging that person before we've even given them an opportunity. But the other problem with it is it really becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. We say that they won't respond, and so what do we do? We don't preach. And so, yeah, they won't respond, will they? If you leave this morning with no other thought and no other uh, memory from this sermon besides this, I want you to understand that, you cannot preach the Word of God without someone responding. 100% of the time, the gospel has preached, 100% of the time, people respond. They respond one of two ways they either respond by accepting or they respond by rejecting. And the only time they won't respond is if we don't preach, if we don't open our mouths. It's really simple. Paul puts it this way in Romans 10 and verse 14. How then can they call him who they've not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? You know, I'm in a small congregation. And uh, I've been in bigger congregations. I notice, for me, there's always an excuse not to work. When you're in a small congregation, the excuse is, well, we're kind of on our way down. Uh, the end is inevitable. And so why would we want to bring somebody new into this? But then on the other end of the spectrum, when you're big and you're thriving and you have young people, kind of like y'all, the other temptation is to say, we've made it. We've got a big congregation. We've got lots of kids. We've got three preachers and they're, they're taking care of it. There's always a reason not to work and the devil's good. He's good. He'll give us an excuse if we're willing to take that excuse. But... How can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? You know, Paul, he didn't take those excuses. He opened his mouth and had courage and preached the gospel. And I want you to see something interesting comes from this. It's not just the conversions that this leads to, but in verse 14, he goes on to say that most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So it's not just the result of converting souls that we're concerned about, but it's actually emboldening the people around us to preach. That's what Paul was able to do. because he opened his mouth, even though he was under arrest, he wouldn't shut up. I love this quote. I think they put it better than I could. Courage is contagious. So is fear, by the way. Courage is contagious. The timid catch boldness from the brave. That's a really sobering verse when you think about it, that Paul preached the gospel and he gave confidence to his brothers so much so that they went on to speak the word fearlessly. And so here's another humbling question that I've had to wrestle with since the last time I preached this sermon. And I almost wish i never asked myself it. But what does that look like? What did it mean that they spoke the word of God fearlessly? Let's make it more personal. What would it look like for you to speak the word of God without fear? To not be afraid of how someone would react. To not be afraid of what someone might think of you. To not be afraid of what the consequences may be. I challenge all of us the next time we're in a situation where that window of opportunity has opened up and I have a chance to preach the gospel, instead of asking ourselves or saying those excuses to ourselves, let's ask ourselves the question what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And do it. Because if you do, you might be rejected. In fact, the odds are stacked against us. You probably will be rejected, they probably won't believe. But there's more at stake. Maybe your spouse will be more bold in sharing the word after seeing you do it. Maybe your children will see that and they're being raised in a home where it's just normal to spread the gospel and so they grow up and they're thinking this is just what you do as a Christian. Maybe your friends will be emboldened because courage is contagious and the timid catch boldness from the brave. See, the gospel is powerful. The word of God is powerful. And as you see here, as Paul's in prison, the word of God is capable of devouring even the most elite of the world's soldiers, isn't it? Converted some of them. And I'm concerned that for myself especially, we live in the day of of, of science, and we got to provide a proof for every little statement. Sometimes you don't, sometimes you just say things and people believe it. But I think sometimes we get bogged down as Christians because we think we got to have all the answers to the possible questions we might get if I start talking about the gospel. i got to be grounded in philosophy. i got to be grounded in the sciences. i got to know every in and out of the origins of the universe. But I think when Peter tells people to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you, I think he was really talking about the word. That's the greatest defense. Because when you find somebody that has a heart to want to believe the word, let me tell you, some of the arguments, they help. But you give them the word, they're going to believe it. And if somebody doesn't have that heart, you can give them the best arguments in the world, and they're not going to believe it. <laughs> and so the word of God, it's been compared to a lion. And it's like we have this lion caged up, and we're on the outside of it, and there's these enemies that are coming towards us, and we're saying to ourselves, we gotta defend the lion. It doesn't dawn on us that if we just open up the cage and let the lion out, the lion will defend itself. That's what we gotta do as God's people. You know the word. Most of you know it well enough to share it. You just got to let the lion out and let the lion go to, go to work. We ought to especially do this when we are in our chains, when we're suffering, when we're in unfavorable circumstances. You know, the Reformation movement is really, uh, it stands out to me. And I know that there's a lot of guys that uh, we, we wouldn't have agreed 100% on things, but these guys were defecting from the Roman church, and that took a lot of courage. And this story stood out, it's one of many, but you got this guy Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in 1555 in Oxford and they're being burned at the stake and there's reports of what they were saying to each other when that happened and one of them says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I should trust shall never be put out. Yeah, it's interesting, they could preach the gospel all the time in, in England But it's not until they were burned at the stake that people probably started listening. That's how suffering works sometimes. It works like this megaphone for the gospel. And so I know that that's kind of a dramatic example. I'll try and make this a little bit more personal and realistic for your situation. Uh, My grandfather, he preached the gospel for 65 years. And he was on his deathbed. And, uh, you know, for a guy that was a preacher, you know, we like to hear ourselves talk. Uh, You you ask him the question, I asked him, I think, you know, is there any, like, one thing that you want us to know uh, before you die? And I'm expecting an answer that, like, only 65 years of experience could give you, right? Something really profound, something I haven't heard before. And he says to me, nope, just stay faithful. Everything will work out. That's it? I tell you what, I probably heard something like that a thousand times in my life. I probably heard it from him a thousand times. You know, how many of you have heard somebody say, just stay faithful, everything will work out, and it, you know, meant nothing to you? I probably heard my grandpa say that a thousand times, and 999 of those times that I heard it, it meant absolutely nothing to me. But when he said it, knowing that death was knocking at the door, on hospice, I'll tell you what, he preached the gospel to me when he said those words in that moment. It's often in our greatest trials that we have the greatest influence on people. When as a parent you've just had the worst week and everybody in the family knows it, man, dad is stressed out, right? And yet your kids still hear you praise and glorify God in your prayers. You say, man, dad's weird. Why is he praising and glorifying God? This was the worst week. When your friends are setting out for a night of no good on a Saturday night and you're wrestling with the temptation of that, but you say to them, no thanks, i got to go to church in the morning. When your grandchildren witness someone dying for the first time and that person is you, and yet they see you do it with hope and assurance. That's how the kingdom works. We don't influence hordes of people at a time. Most of us won't. It happens one at a time. It spreads slowly like leaven, and you influence one person without really realizing you've just influenced a hundred because of all the people that that person's going to go out and influence in their life. When I think about Paul. He had to have some idea that he was influencing a lot of people. He wasn't just you know, helping people become Christians. He was planting churches for the first time, but even Paul couldn't fathom how many people Christ was influencing through him. Maybe he thought it was hundreds, maybe he thought it was thousands, but what is it in reality? Millions? Billions? And here we are 2,000 years later, still reading the words that he wrote while under arrest. You see, Paul, he saw the purpose, he saw the opportunity, and he sees that opportunity, and because he was willing to do that, he was able to rejoice even when he was in his chains. And it was this joy that you couldn't take away from him. I want you to notice verse 15. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Here's a guy in prison. It's bad enough. But people that like he used to worship with, maybe are taking the gospel and they're preaching, it seems, the true gospel, but they're doing it for the total wrong reasons. They're doing it to get him, to to afflict him, to turn the knife in the wound. And yet, it didn't affect him. What does he say, verse 18? What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. He'll let God take care of those guys but he'll rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. So here's the great thing about being a Christian. When you become a Christian, it changes everything. Where all of a sudden, prison walls, chains, even an old rugged cross play a role in God's eternal plan. And so I don't know where you're at in life. Whether you work a job you hate, whether you're going to school, maybe you're just getting out of a jail cell on your your deathbed facing ridicule, facing the mundane, facing the challenges that come with being a parent or a grandparent, enduring temptation, whatever it is, whatever your chain is, there are people in your life that need the gospel proclaimed. And only you can do it. If We can only see where our chain leads and seize it. And this, Paul says, he rejoiced. One last thought I want to leave with you. Paul doesn't say he rejoiced at all the conversions, although no doubt he probably did. Who wouldn't? But he says he rejoices simply that Christ is proclaimed. Maybe that's the difference between me and Paul, one of many. That he simply got excited just over the proclamation of the gospel. If we do that, we've done our job and we'll let God take care of the results and the people who hear it take responsibility for how they respond. He didn't just rejoice at the conversions, at the number of baptisms, but at the proclamation. So let's have the courage to let the lion out of the cage. And if you're here this morning and life isn't going your way and you're just waiting, man, once life goes my way, then I'll have joy. Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? (laughs) Um, This is an opportunity to change the purpose in your life to obey the gospel and you can play a role, even if it's just a small one, and an eternal plan that God has. Why don't you come forward and st- as we stand and sing the song of invitation?